Before we pray, I, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about a, a special event that's going to be taking place in our community uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, as you know, uh, one of the, uh, the, the great church ministries in our brotherhood has been uh, at the Sunset Church of Christ, the Sunset International Bible Institute up in Lubbock, Texas. And we have, uh, we have supported uh, different preachers out of that, uh, out of that training school. We have sent people there. We have had uh, a number of, of, of folks that have been uh, converted who are a member of our church family that were converted by, by students of that school. We also have uh, a family that, uh, that has worked very diligently with Sunset International Bible Institute over a number of years. And on March 28th, there is going to be a dinner in... Um, in San Antonio to benefit the school. It's going to be at the Lackland Terrace Church. It's going to start at 6.30. The cost is free, but there is a sign-up sheet. But this year is going to be pretty special. Uh, one of our shepherds, Ben Clements, is going to, uh, to lead one of the prayers at the dinner. But uh, at, the, uh, at the center of the dinner is going to be the recognizing, in my, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, long, long, long overdue, uh, recognizing Everett and Vicki Heiston for the work that they have done over the decades. Uh, with Sunset and, and how Everett has been not only just a, a, a tremendous example and Vicki as well of the kind of students and the kind of men that are turned out by the school, but as someone who has blessed our church immeasurably over the decades, amen, uh, by the training that he received at Sunset and, and the subsequent years of working with them, uh, I think this is, uh, this is long overdue. And as uh, not just uh, uh, the minister of this church, but as one of Everett's friends and uh, a brother in Christ, uh, uh, I would like to invite you to, to, to be a part of this dinner that is going to, uh, to recognize Everett and Vicki for all of their years of service uh, for Sunset and uh, the Bible Institute and all of the preachers that have been trained and the money that has been raised to send them all over the world. And uh, there's some information in the announcement sheet. You'll find that on the inside of that announcement sheet. But circle it. And make sure that you reserve that date and sign up. Uh, it is free of charge. And uh, one, of, one of the great men in my own life uh, and, and his wife are going to be, be recognized. Uh, Everett and Vicki are great, great people and have been a blessing to this church. Now, we are going to jump into Luke chapter 22 for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be, as we get close to uh, the uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to be focusing on the life of Christ, uh, basically the end of Christ's life. And we're going to begin by thinking about the king is abandoned. And that's going to be Luke chapter 22. I hope you have your Bibles open there. Get the, uh, the sermon outline that you find in the announcement sheet out so you can use it and make notes. As we go along, you'll notice that there's going to be some things to fill in, some questions uh, that you need to fill in and answer as well. But before we jump into this text that Alan has read for us, let's bow our heads and ask God to bless us. Father, we have sung about the greatness of Your Word and how it's uh, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And, and that is exactly what it is. But it is also a Word that draws us close to You. It not only protects our life by uh, extending to us uh, great, great wisdom, but it also tells us so much about You and about Your character. And as we think about this, this last day of Jesus' life, 
and over the next couple of weeks as we, we still consider that, that, last, that last day. What we're asking for, Father, is for Your, your Spirit to, to teach us and to grant us wisdom and for Your Word to, to, to be opened up to us and, and for us to be really, truly changed because we've been given, granted, eyes that see and ears that hear. And this is the blessing that we ask for this morning, Father, as we enter into this text with all that we are. We ask that You speak to us through it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke uh, chapter 22 is, and, and you, you don't ever want to uh, select one chapter as maybe being more important than another chapter, but chapter 22 really is a very important chapter in Luke's Gospel. The reason is it's the last day of Jesus' life. It's the last supper, the last meal that He is going to have with them up in the upper room. It's the last prayer with His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you read this chapter, it's a, it's a rather long chapter, and, and uh, Alan has just read a portion of it to us, what you begin to see is that there is a theme, a theme of sorts that begins to, to unfold. And the theme is this, that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of Man, Jesus the Son of God, is abandoned and forsaken systematically. Jesus, the Son of God, is abandoned and forsaken systematically. All of those friends that He had that should have stood by Him, don't. All of those people of faith that should have remained faithful to Him are not. And there are three major cap, uh, uh, characters in this, this chapter. We're going to look at all three of them this morning. They are Judas, Peter, and Jesus Himself. The first is Judas. And Judas takes up about three parts of this, of this text of Luke chapter 22. The first is Luke chapter 22, the first six verses. In verse 2, you have all of the chief priests and the teachers of the law who have come together to try to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. And in verse 4, Judas goes into them and gives them a way to do it because in verse 3, Satan has entered into his heart and he is going to be the one that is going to betray Jesus. We drop down to verse 5 and they've all come to an agreement on the amount of money that's going to be paid. They've all come to an agreement or there's a, a concord, that, an accord that is made on the way that it's going to be done. It's going to be done away from the crowds. And then the next time that Judas kind of becomes a part of this text is in verses 22 and 23. It's the Last Supper. It's the upper room. And Jesus is explaining what the bread means. He, he takes the cup and He says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I, I drink of it with you in the kingdom of God. And then He takes the bread. It says, this bread is my body that's given for you. And then He takes the cup again and talks about this represents blood, my blood that is spilled for you. And then out of the blue, after explaining what the greatness of this supper is going to be for all of ages, He says, one of you is going to betray Me. One of you is going to betray me. And what you see in that text is that everybody begins to wonder, is it, is it them? They begin to debate, who's it going to be? Am I the one? Surely not I. Am I the one? And then the third part is in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 and 48. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the end of the prayer. Jesus is with His disciples once again. Judas enters into that garden with, with, a, with a group of armed individuals. And he walks over to Jesus and they have agreed upon this sign in which Jesus is going to identify who the Messiah is, the one they're supposed to arrest. It's by a kiss. And in verse 48, Jesus asks the very important, famous question, Judas, 
do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? There is not just a little bit of irony in that question. Now the question that has haunted all kinds of men, not just believers, but even non-believers over the last 2,000 years, this question up here on the screen. Why did Judas do it? Why did Judas do it? Well, the most obvious answer and the most popular answer is this. He is the most horrible individual who has ever lived. He is the worst of the worst. He makes Charles Manson look like Dudley Do-Right. And one of the best examples of this found in in literature, Dante's Inferno. Uh, You you know the story. Dante is uh, Alighieri is from from Italy, and he writes about what, what hell is all about. And we would think, uh, just, you know, and just maybe guessing, having never read the book, that, that his hell, the deepest level of that hell, is nothing but flame and fire and heat. But because Germany, during that time, and uh, Dante is Italian, because Germany is the big enemy to the north, the lowest level of hell in this, in this story about hell is a, a, a cold, frozen lake. And that is the place that is reserved for the most incredibly heinous characters in all of history, in all of the universe. You have all of the great ones in this lake of ice. And there's Judas in that lake of ice being devoured devoured personally by Satan. Well, the flip side of that coin is that he's not the worst individual, but he is a misunderstood individual. That he is really, in some people's minds, he's this heroic freedom fighter. And, and it's kind of hard sometimes to know when these ideas develop, but over the last century or so, there has been uh, a couple of, of times where you see Judas as the, the one that has all of the moxie. He's this heroic freedom fighter. Uh, you see in the, last, the movie, The Last Temptation of Jesus, Judas is the one who is trying to get Jesus who is weak and Jesus who is meek and Jesus who is feeble and not sure of himself. It's Judas who has all the moxie. It's Judas who has the strength of character and the focus and the vision. He's not the guy that's going to be afraid to pull the trigger. And so the way that he gets Jesus to rally the troops in an attempt to get Jesus to do this is to betray him and force Jesus' hand. Well, one of the things that that we do around here, especially if you're visiting with us, I'll I'll let you know. One of the things that we try to do around here when it comes to the Word of God is we let the Word of God speak to us. And we try to figure out what the Word of God says. And once we figure that out, we let the chips fall where they may. And when we've had a, 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 a time, a period of time, where we can sensitively read Luke chapter 22, one of the things that we discover, and it's not just this chapter, but it's all of the Gospels that one of the things that they stress is the ordinary humanness of Judas. Judas does not look like the Judas we have conjured up in our mind. All of the disciples at this point in the story are asking, you don't think it's me, do you? Am I the one? Surely not I. Judas is not the only one that's asking. They all wondered if they were, in fact, the Judas. Now, what are we to make? What's happening here with this questioning? Am I the one? Surely it is not me. Am I I the one in in this debate over who it might be? Well, you have to go back to Luke chapter 19. And what you see in Luke chapter 19 is Jesus making this non-accidental. It's no accident that Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. Jesus is being publicly proclaimed to be the king of Israel. And he rides into the city on this colt. 
in a way that nobody is going to misconstrue. There is no uncertainty about what it is that Jesus is doing. That's why all the people rally like that and recognize Him as the Son of David. Now having done that, the powers that be in Judaism are left with a dilemma. Jesus has come in. He has come in in the way that is recognized as the way that the Messiah, the King of Israel, the one that is going to restore God's kingdom uh, and take Rome's foot off of their throat. He has come in that way. Everybody recognizes it. Now their dilemma is this. Do we bow down to Him? Do we bow to Him? Or do we kill Him? And that's why at the beginning of Luke chapter 22, in those first six verses where Judas is introduced as the one, the conspirator, that's why they're trying to figure out how they're going to kill him. And Judas is thinking what they all had to be thinking. Christ has to take power. He has revealed himself to be the Messiah. He has revealed himself in the eyes of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots. And in front of all of those guards at the Fortress Antonia, just on the north side of, of, of the Temple Mount, He has revealed Himself to be the King. He, we're all in danger because of that. Because everyone who is an enemy of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, or if the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, they are in danger because all eyes are looking at Him and His followers. And so it's very natural for Judas to ask, why does He do nothing? Why does he do nothing? Why is he not rallying the troops? All of the disciples, not just Judas, know that the clock is ticking before he and they along with him are going to be crushed. There has to be that thought in their mind that I've got to do something or I'm going to be crushed with them. What occurred to Judas has occurred to all of them in their thinking. That's why they're asking, am I the one? Am I the one? Surely it's not I. They begin to debate who it is that is really going to betray. Peter finally asks, can you tell us who it is? Judas is like all of them, and they are all like Judas. Which brings up another important question for us. How much like Judas are we? Now, if you think about this just in the very specifics, I mean, you get one inch off of the ground, and you put yourself right in the middle of this, this circumstance, you're going to say, no, I would never do that. I would never take 30 pieces of silver to deny Jesus. I've been asked if I'm a Christian. I've never denied the fact that I'm a Christian. I, I'm, I'm never like that. But suppose we, we raise up about 1,000 feet and we look down kind of globally at this scene. What we see is that Judas is the person who sells Jesus. Judas is the person who sells Jesus. He betrays him for money. Judas is the one who follows Jesus when it profits. But he sells Jesus when it costs. I want to say that again. Judas is the one who follows Jesus when it profits, when he gets the blessing, when there's going to be some benefit that comes from following the Christ. But when it, it becomes inconvenient, when it becomes a cost, that's the time when he sells Jesus. Judas is the one, when it looks like he's going to profit from the power that he's going to be able to garner some blessings because of his association with Jesus, then he's all in. That's the sin of Judas. It's that he's not sold out everything to God. He's not sold out. What he's trying to do is to manage God, which, by the way, 
is a huge problem and probably one of the biggest problems with contemporary Christianity in America. It's follow when it's convenient. When there are blessings to be had, when there's a problem that can get fixed, when I can be made to feel better about myself, when it doesn't kind of get into the way of the things that I really want to do, and when it profits me like that, then I'm going to be a Christian. But I get grumpy and I get grouchy when it's not. And so to try to manage that, what we try to do is we, you know, it, it really comes down to this question. We're either trying to serve God because we've sold out everything that we are to Him or we're trying to manage God to serve us. Now here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thing that I, if you don't pay attention to anything else, pay attention to this. Judas is the guy that sells when it costs. He keeps him when it profits, he sells when it costs. Now, while the sun is out and everything's great and we're in meadows and there's brooks and there's everything is great, then both those that are like Judas and those that are true disciples look exactly alike. Those that have sold out to God and those that are trying to manage God look identical on the pews. You tell the difference, though, when the storm comes. And it's not just that there's some adversity or some trouble that's come into life. It may be that you have been called to sacrifice something in order for the good of the kingdom uh, to, 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 uh, to be experienced by somebody else, for the borders of God's kingdom to be expanded in your, your community. And when that kind of storm comes, then that's when you begin to see, am I selling him because it costs? That's why Judas's sin is an insider's sin. Judas looks like everyone else until the storm comes. It's an insider's sin. It's not you betray me with a punch to the face. It's you betray me with a kiss. That's why Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, these very important, sobering words. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, he's not writing this to a bunch of people who have never heard of Jesus, never heard of God, never heard of the church, never heard of the cross, never heard of the resurrection, never heard of worship. He's writing to people that are in a very influential church in Asia Minor. And he's saying, you know what? After all of the things that this church has had to face and is facing and is going to face, you know what you need to do? You need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. You need to test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Do you follow when it profits? And do you sell when it costs? Well, that's Judas. Let's, let's, let's think about Peter for a few minutes. In verse 24 of this chapter, there's this dispute that breaks out right after Jesus has talked about the betraying part. These disciples... Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they're very ugly, sometimes they're beautiful. This is one of those moments where you scratch your head and you're going, why in the world are you having this discussion? But they are. And it's there in the text. They're, they're discussing, debating really, arguing over who is the greatest. And Jesus at this point begins to talk to Peter in verse 31. He says three things basically to Peter beginning in verse 31. The first is, Peter... Satan has said your name, your personal name, into the ear of God. 
Satan knows who you are. And he wants to sift you like wheat. What would you do if you knew that Satan said your name and asked for permission to sift you like wheat? And then he says, I will pray for you. And then the third thing he says is when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. When he says, when you turn back, it means that he is going to fall. Jesus is telling Peter, you will fail. And Peter responds, I mean, think about how you would respond for just a minute. Peter's response is, no way. No way. Not, I, I can't believe this. How did I get on that radar? How did Satan learn my name? Can you help me? But instead it's, no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not that guy. And then Jesus gets very specific for, you know, Cliff McCauley uh, uh, and I have had these conversations, and, and I, I think Cliff, Cliff is just spot on, absolutely right, that the, that the greatest gift that any human being can have is a sense of self. And, and Jesus is trying to give that sense of self to Peter. He says, Peter, Peter, my friend, Satan is going to grab you, and he wants to throw you to the ground so many times he destroys you. And Peter says, no, you, you've got the wrong guy. And so Jesus says, and he's giving him Peter the sense of self. He's giving him an insight into his own character. He gets very specific. He wants Peter to understand who Peter is. And he says, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. You're, three times you're going to say you don't know me. Three times you're going to say that, that you are not connected to me. To save your own skin, you're going to sell me out as a coward. In other words, Peter, you're going to follow me when it profits, but you're going to sell when it costs. You know, when you get right down to it, there's not a lot of difference between Judas and Peter, is there? And in the end of, uh, towards the end of Luke chapter 22, in the, in the text that Alan read for us, we have this very thing happening as Jesus said it would. And Peter's life falls apart when Jesus looks right at him. It says that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now what is this sin that, that, that Peter is, is, is guilty of here? Is it that someone asks you if you're a Christian and, and, and you say, no, I've never heard of it? Well, yes, you know, at a certain degree, but we've got to get beneath the surface here. That, that is the truth, but we, ha we have to go beneath the surface just a little bit. Judas is ready to bail out when life doesn't suit him. Peter, on the other hand, his sin is the sin of overconfidence. Peter thinks that in the privacy of the upper room, and the privacy of his friends, when it's private, 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 then he can thump his chest and say, I'll be true to Jesus. 
But then here comes this little old girl who says, you know, aren't you one of the ones? And he says, no. And then a man comes up and he says, no. And another man comes up and says, yes, you're one of the Galileans. He goes, no. The problem is that Peter has not learned how to be blessed by being poor in spirit. And to be the best, sometimes, friends, you have to face what's worst in you. And this is what Peter's having to face. Is that he's overconfident, he's the, he's the captain of his own boat, he's the guy that commands men to fish for him, and there is no way that Satan is going to have command of his life. He's overconfident. And Jesus looks right at him and he weeps bitterly because what Jesus has said is true. The question, why do, why do, we, why do we want to leave when the going gets tough? Why do we want to leave? Why do we want to give up? Why do we want to flee when the going gets tough? Why bail when things get bad? Well, one of the reasons is is that you know a lot of times we don't understand that we are saved by grace. We look around, we see people that we think that we're better than, morally, spiritually. They seem to have better lives. And because God is not measuring up, it's not profiting us to follow, but it's costing us, that's why we get out. We don't understand the dynamic of that grace that comes from Christ's love. We think that we're saved by what we do for God. Therefore, God owes us. I have followed and followed and followed and followed and followed and followed. And we sit in front of Him and say, after all we've done for you, this is what we get? Something goes wrong, you get mad, you're filled with resentment. But the truth is, is that we are saved by grace. You know what another way of saying we're saved by grace is? Is that God somehow is able to melt our hearts. That the God of heaven, the, the Creator God, the God who is known to us as Father, not just personally as Yahweh, but as our Father, our Savior, our Shepherd. He somehow through His love and mercy and the testimony of the Spirit, it is through Christ's example of love on the cross and in the garden and at this supper, it somehow is able to melt the heart of betrayers. And that's why we end right now with Christ. He is the one who melts the heart of a betrayer. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, which is, is uh, the, 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 uh, the parallel chapter with Luke chapter 22 and Mark chapter 14, John chapter 13, he calls Judas friend. Friend. He calls him friend. He tries to get Judas' attention to what he's doing with a pointed question. You betray me with a kiss. He is in Isaiah Prince of Peace and a wonderful counselor. He's asking the, the, the question. Think about what it is you're doing. You, do you betray me with a kiss? Jesus doesn't say, if they repent, then the love will come. He doesn't say, if they will get down and grovel before me, then just maybe the love will come. What He's trying to do with, with the, with the, with the friend and with the Judas, 
Do you betray me with a kiss? He is trying to enable the repentance. He's trying to make it easy for them to come back. That's why he doesn't just say, Peter. He says, Simon, Simon. In the Hebrew language, when you wanted to show intensity of emotion, when you want to underscore how you feel about somebody, you say their name twice. It's 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 Second Samuel and it or, yeah, Second Samuel and Absalom has has been killed by Joab, hanging from the tree with that long hair, and the word of Absalom's death comes to his father, the king, King David, and he says, Absalom, Absalom, because his heart is broken. Because he loves his son, Absalom. It's not just Absalom. It's Absalom, Absalom. And Jesus is having to be more honest with Peter than he's ever been in his life. And it can be a truth that can break Peter. But Peter's a pretty strong guy. And the pride thing is, the overconfidence is in high rev. And he says, you are going to disown me three times before the rooster even occurs, before the day even starts. That's how you're going to start your day, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. Before coffee. But the way that he says it is, Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon. I wonder how we talk to people who are trying to ruin our lives. Another sermon though. But the reason that Peter is able to come back and the reason that you and you and me and all of us are able to come back is because of the blowtorch of His love on our hearts. I mean, we really have to see what's going on here. The abandonment of Jesus by Judas and Peter is just foreshadowing. It's just, it's, just, it's just a hint of something far greater, a far greater abandonment and forsaking that is going to take place later in the book. But here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is in agonia. He is in agony to the point that He is beginning to sweat drops of blood. If you go to the parallel passage in Mark 14, uh, He is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Literally, literally in the... He is amazed at the weight and the intensity of the emotions that He has, has, has begun to feel. And he's there in that garden and he's sweating those drop, drops of blood. I mean, Jesus has prayed to God the Father hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Why is this happening now? Why the shock? Why this incredible amazement at what it is that he is experiencing? It is because... At this point, Jesus is not just anticipating God's wrath. But the cup of that wrath is now before Him to drink. Father, Father, let this what? Cup. If it's Your will, let this cup pass from Me. And now this cup is before Him. And it is the horror of God the Son who has spent all of eternity in the perfect, harmonious presence of God the Father, who now finds before Him, not heaven, but hell. And what it is He sees is the wrath of God. 
And what it is that Jesus, the Messiah, sees in that garden is that He is going to suffer for us and indign- uh, God's indignation in a way that He has never seen it before. For Christ, the words of Nahum chapter 1, verse 6 have, have come true. The prophet says, Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? His wrath is poured out, friends, like, like fire and the rocks. When they see His wrath, they are shattered before Him. The, the question is, who can withstand that? The answer is one. And it's not me. And it's not you. We're betrayers. We're the overconfident. We're the ones that struggle with following when it profits and selling when it costs. The answer is who can withstand that indignation? Who can stand the wrath that when it's poured out on rocks, they explode and become like dust? The answer is one. And the amazing thing is that He chooses to die for us even though we abandon Him. It's amazing, quite frankly. It's astonishing that He dips His hand with with bread into a... He he shares food with the very one that is going to betray Him. He's got these disciples that are just in, in some ways very, very ugly in their spirituality during this particular episode. And yet, betrayed with a kiss, He chooses to die for them. But the most amazing thing, it's not that He's going to die for someone that will betray Him because that sort of theologically makes sense, right? You know what the most amazing thing is? It's the garden. It's, it's outside the city walls. It's dark. He sees the cup. And He could have run away. could have skedaddled over the Mount of Olives and been off towards the Transjordan. It's dark. And He is alone. And He's outside the city gates. He's outside the city walls. They have to cross the Kidron Valley to get to Him. And they're not even sure what He looks like. Judas is going to have to betray Him with the kids. That's the signal. But He chooses to die for us even when He begins to see the glowings of the heat of hell. In the garden, His experience is this. It is beginning to get the taste of the cup. This is what the cup will taste like. And what it is, is God turning away from His soul. He will experience the abandonment of the Father. God will turn away from His soul so that those who have faith in Christ, who sell out everything to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, who participate in that death, burial, and resurrection by baptism, Romans chapter 6, your sins being washed away, You're you're ending that enslavement to sin. You're now not only dead to sin, but able to, to dedicate the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. Everything changes there. 
question is, the question is this. The last question. Why are our arms not around His neck? Why are our arms not around His neck embracing Him and clinging to Him and, and loving Him and, and kissing Him? It may be because we haven't yet perceived that His arms are around our neck kissing us and hugging us and loving us and dying for us and enabling us to come back and enabling us to repent and enabling us to have our hearts melted. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Do you sell Jesus when it costs? Are you so overconfident that 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 you you don't have a proper sense of who you are in light of the greatness of Christ and what He has done for you. When you see the amazing and the more amazing kind of love that He shows us by knowing what that cup will taste like and choosing to drink it anyway when He could have run off. But He does it because of love. Love for you and love for me so that we don't have to experience that. Well, we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front and during the singing of this song, if we can help you connect to God in any way possible in order for you to feel His arms around your neck for the rest of your life and all of eternity, then come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me.